know, it's the type of industry that's always competitive. I don't think at any level, the higher you get, you don't think, whoa, it's so comfortable up here. You're still uncomfortable. You still want more and nothing's secure. And it's a high pressure job too. I want people to look back and think like, damn, Roz is still here. She's still like, she, like, I think of this as my two mile race. Like I got endurance. I'm not going to get too high with the highs, too low with the lows. I'm steadily building. I'm keeping pace. And I have the capability of exploding past you. A lot of y'all, but a lot of y'all don't have the endurance I have. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. We are digging into the human stories behind success and this two-part episode series is just a really special one. I spoke with my close friend, Roz Goldenwede, about her life and sports broadcasting career journey. I recorded this episode nearly a year ago, and at that point, this podcast was simply a dream, and I'm just so grateful to have friends like Roz who supported me. I'm releasing our conversation this week because first, it's time, <laughs> it happened a year ago, but also because it's my birthday week. I just love celebrating life and attaching meaning to another year on this earth. Friendship is something that is extremely important to me. So we are celebrating friendship, we're celebrating our journeys, and we are celebrating our progression. You'll learn more about Roz's growth and progression in this episode, and you'll see mine if you've been keeping up with the podcast. Surprisingly, I was nervous when I interviewed Roz. She's the accomplished broadcaster, and I read, write, research, and analyze documents all day as an attorney. I thought, this is not my lane. But I quickly realized that it is. With each episode, I've been able to more confidently step into my voice and ultimately into my purpose. So if you're eager to do something, but you're afraid to step outside of your comfort zone, please do it. So many of us don't give ourselves the opportunity to step into our gifts, and you can step into different lanes or create new ones. And this is exactly what Roz has done. But before we get to our conversation where we unpack this and much more, I'd love to tell you more about Roz. So Roz Goldenwede is a sports broadcaster covering the NBA and WNBA for ESPN, and she earned her BA in communications and then her master's degree in sociology of business from Stanford. As a member of the Stanford women's basketball team, Roz played in three Final Fours and two national championship games, helping the Cardinal win four conference titles as starting guard. And she was named the 2010 Pac-10 Co-Defensive Player of the Year. Following her Stanford career, Roz played on the Nigerian national basketball team, and her passions include mentoring young girls, empowering minority women in business and media, raising awareness about mental health issues, and developing opportunities for the youth in Africa. In her spare time, Roz enjoys angel investing and building in tech in Web3. Yes, she's really into crypto. She's tried to explain it to me a few times. I'm still wrapping my head around the metaverse, but it is a very exciting and interesting space. <laughs> Her mission is to increase education and awareness in tech and crypto to build more inclusive communities and increase access to life-changing opportunities in these spaces, especially for minorities and women. And that's just the short bio. Roz has done so many incredible things that we definitely dig into during the episodes, but I would describe these two episodes as a window into an inspirational life because I just really appreciated Roz's vulnerability, and while she certainly lives this really fun and often glamorous life portrayed on social media, the story behind it was hard. 
it was challenging, it was beautiful, and it was human. I think you guys are going to leave the conversation feeling inspired, so let's get to it. So we have Roz here with us today, and I am so excited because Roz is a really good friend of mine, and I have seen her from not the very beginning, which we'll talk about, but I've seen her start from at least when we were, I believe you were a senior or getting your graduate degree, the master's program, and we went to the Virgin Islands to do a public <laughs> service project together, and you were teaching public speaking. and. It was, I remember the start of that and we were just chatting about your career and I've, I'm just so proud of you to see all the things that you've done. So thank you for joining us on No Straight Path. And I'd love to start just Roz, like tell me about the beginning. Tell me about childhood, Roz. Tell me about mm-hmm. your family, how you grew up and your hopes and dreams as a child. First of all, thank you, Ashley, for having me. You're a ray of light and everything you say you're going to do, you do. You told me you wanted to do something like this and you're building it out. I'm so proud of you amongst all your other accolades and and who you are as a person, mostly. So thanks for creating this very comfortable space to share in. So I'm from Queens, New York. My name's Roz Gold Anwade, short for Rosalind. Gold is on my mother's side. She's Jewish. Anwade is my dad's side. He's Nigerian. My dad is a Nigerian immigrant. He came here, like to go to college, and he was a an engineer, more like a electrician, if you will, and tried to start his own business in the U.S. around fixing various devices, whether it be TVs or VCRs, and obviously ran into a lot of trouble too, as like technology changed fast. He met my mom in New York, where things like that happen. I think he was driving a cab, and. He, And my mom is from Queens, has been a Queens girl her whole life, comes from grandparents that left Riga, Latvia, Russia to escape Nazis and came to the U.S. and brought back the family. My mom has always had a passion for women, a passion for sports, a passion for opportunities, which is how I got into basketball. Probably got her passion for the game and my dad's athleticism (laughs) because she didn't play any sports. She was quite quirky and nerdy. Okay. But in the best way. Yeah. <laughs> in good ways, though. I see like, a little bit in you. Oh, please. I am so quirky and nerdy. I'm totally, my, but I've also got my dad's social ability. My dad could light up a room. He was the life of the party. He was that great friend. My mom was quiet, you know, maybe a little bit softer, maybe more dominated by my, my dad was the dominant one in the house. That's why I really, you know, recognize my Nigerian culture a lot. We were raised to know our Nigerian side. It was important to my dad. And, and he, you know, in many ways was in charge in the house. I was raised Christian, although I'm, I was exposed to both sides of my family. We grew up lower class, but we felt regular in Queens. And I have a little sister from my mom and dad, but things got worse for us over time. My dad left, went back to Nigeria. My sister went through a lot. My mom has been battling early onset dementia, Alzheimer's, Um, we lost our apartment, we lost our house. I mean, so that was kind of the scope of where we started, where we ended up. And I would say out of the tough times in my family came a lot of the life skills and the fire under my butt to do more. And the last thing I'll say about my family, we didn't have a lot, but academics was really important to both my mother and father, the sports more to my mom, but my dad later came on and, um, 
you know, they both loved me in their own ways and really um, helped put me on a path to like go to Stanford and work hard in school and work hard in life. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. I do want to get a little bit, yeah, more into when you got to Stanford, did you already know you wanted to be a sports broadcaster? Like, how did you get on this career path? Well, when I got to Stanford, I knew I was always thinking about life after basketball. So I went on a basketball scholarship and I played, I did my undergrad and I did my graduate degree at Stanford by the grace of God all through the scholarship. But I was always someone, I think part of the hustle that I saw in my house, my mother worked nights. She was a computer programmer, website designer. She was ahead of her time and she worked nights. My mom may not have been the strongest personality, but she uh, was really smart and strong in her own way. I got to really appreciate her as I got older. I think when I was younger, I saw like, I don't know, maybe weakness or maybe just like mistook her quietness didn't have the maturity yet to recognize her strength that you can recognize when you're an older woman yourself. But my mom instilled that, like I saw her working. My dad was always hustling. I mean, that's the Nigerian way in New York. you got a certain level of grind and grit. I certainly got that from ball growing up, playing at the parks, fighting for playing time, just, you know, trying to hold my own and be respected. I learned a lot from those tournaments at the park about not letting anybody punk me to this day. I think about that. It's a grit that you get that's internal. There's a competitiveness about you. And so when I was at Stanford, the hardest part for me at Stanford, hands down, was the basketball, actually. The academics was not the hard part. Oh, wow. I had, yeah. I'm curious about if that was your experience. You know, it's it's interesting. First of all, I just really want to go back to two things because you said two really important things. First, the way you're talking about your mother's strength mm-hmm. and how we view strength, because I've also changed my views of that. And I wanted you just to touch on a little bit more about that, because I used to think that strength was associated with not crying, pushing through, not necessarily opening up, always seeming like you can hold it together. That That's what I thought strength was, but I think that's part of it. But then there's also this really big part of being vulnerable that I think could be a form of strength. And you can cry, you can show human emotion and still be very strong. So I guess I just wanted to to learn a little bit more about your definition of that. And the second thing was just, I laugh at how you say ball. I was like, wait, what did she just say? It's so New York. (laughs) (laughs) Walk, talk, coffee, ball, it'll sneak out. Um, Yeah. I mean, when you think about it too, where it starts, like where my mom, how she was raised, you know, this was a white Jewish girl in Queens who came up probably like middle-class and her father left. So it was just her mother who eventually died young of cancer. The strong person in the house was grandma Minnie who came over from Latvia alone to escape the Nazis and then went back to bring the family. She was a very strong voice in our household. I mean, in my mom's household. So without father, and also without mother early and grandma Minnie leading the way. And she was the only child. My mom was always quiet, but always smart. First of all, you know, kind of bold enough to one, aspire as a woman at that time to have a career. My mom went to SUNY Albany. She wrote about the women's soccer programs at SUNY Albany or the basketball programs in the school newsletter. She didn't play herself, but also imagine a woman with the passion to recognize it as important and that that story needed to be told. Actually, parts of her family stopped speaking to her 
you know, when she brought home an, an African man, right, right, right. <laughs> she, my family too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fly. We, we love Shagun. But, um, so then in that time where it's not like it is now, you know, it wasn't like we lived in New York, so I never really felt weird about it, but certainly for her, it was big to raise biracial children, the struggle with dealing with our hair. She had no idea how, you know, in her own way, she tried to create communities where I would meet other Black people, whether it was, you know, rekindling the relationship with my godmother, Sharon, and my mother, Patricia Gold, even after that, my parents got a divorce or enrolling me into basketball teams. And she was the one that put the flyers up. She was the one with MS Paint would draw little girl stick figures with a basketball and print them out and put them on the streets and say, mothers, bring your daughters to the CYO gym at our Lady of the Angelus Church. We used to play in the basement. Oh, I love my, mom one. my mom created like a little website to put the pictures of the girls after for the Slam Jam tournament. She was the one that sent my, you know, tape to Stanford to let Tara Vanderveer know about me and see if I could get recruited. You know, my mom would spend hours all night trying to get us to do our homework to help us with our homework. She wasn't necessarily a gourmet chef, but she tried. She could do some <laughs> little barbecue chicken here and there and. You know, I remember my mom really wanted to make it happen. Like she recognized if I could do well in school or if I did well in basketball, you know, like I always had J's. She found a way to make sure I had Jordans. And I remember one time going to Stanford, I wanted, a, of course, I wanted an Apple laptop. Right, you know, right. I always, you know, we always want that. And an Apple laptop was expensive. My mom found a way. I went to school with an Apple laptop. You know, I had a nice dress for prom. Like these are small things I remember, but yeah, yeah. Um, just to finish on her strength, you know, my dad was dominant and it did feel like an enforcer was home when the door opened. Like when I felt his keys in the house, you know, I did feel a little tension in my tummy because they would often argue mm -hmm. before the divorce. And it was his way anyway. He's, and that's part of his culture, too, traditionally. Like, you know, so culturally understanding my father was a was a whole journey, too. But she would get really quiet in the house. I think as children, we understood whose voice was going to get their way and you internalize that and even at times I regret even as children I remember feeling like maybe we were dominating my mom because we knew we could get away with it even when my dad left my mom was always working trying to find ways to make money you know without saying too much but my dad and her he wasn't the greatest on the you know in the relationship or the example shown wasn't great I knew I didn't want that mm -hmm. and you know my dad is a very complex man you know he just passed recently. Uh, he's complex. We love him. He loved me. He also yeah. could have been better in certain ways too, as many people have with their dads. But my mom released herself of the draw and all that he was taking from her, even after the divorce. And, you know, just when she started to seem like she was getting free, the early onset dementia hit, like she was like 50. Oh, and yeah. then she had a hard time, you know, keeping up and she's gone through a lot, you know, because she couldn't keep the job. We lost our apartment. We had her in a woman's shelter and then on a woman's program. But she, the, it was like we were a step behind the disease. And she kept diminishing in her ability to do things just as we would get her into some next level program until eventually we got the diagnosis that she was going to have full-blown Alzheimer's at some point. And right now she can't you know, speak or talk or anything. But it, it's been that way for a while. It was so early. I wish she could have finally enjoyed some of the life you know, that she worked hard for that she helped me be able to have. And I'd love to give that back to her, but 
the last thing she can remember probably or was wary for or alert for was, you know, being on the street. And I just got out of college and we found a way to get her off. And Annie went through a lot. My little sister, Annie, was going a lot too. We have mental health issues in our family and dad left. And so she was the last thing she remembered though, was that she was a mom and she was always worried about my little sister. Mm. Like, like she didn't know who I quite was. She didn't, you could, it was hard to have a combo with her, but every now and there, there'd be a moment of clarity and mom instincts was hidden. And she would ask how Annie's doing. And that's my little mm. sister. So you know, it's so funny how like our last primal instincts, that's what she was about. And at the end of the marriage, I saw her strength and also even in the divorce with my dad growing, that she was willing to to speak up, you know, to, yeah. to say no, to fight back. She tried, you know, and so I see that in her. She really just just a steady heartbeat, quietly knocking away at life. I love that. Just thank you for sharing. <laughs> she just sounds like such an amazing woman. And I actually have not similar story, but it did remind me of something, just that primal instinct at the end of being a mother, because that's so similar to how my mom was at the end. Cause you know, at the end mm-hmm. she could not communicate. And I hugged her a couple of days before she passed. And my aunt said, Ashley, she moved for you. She had a reaction. She's like, I hadn't because she had, my aunt had been sitting with her that day. And she's like, she had a reaction when you came in knowing that that was her baby girl. And yeah. I, it, it's just amazing how mothers, even they can go through this state where they're not themselves, you know, mm-hmm. but still be able to connect to that motherhood. It's so beautiful. Um, it is so beautiful. Yeah. You know, and I believe that that is 100% true, even if they can't communicate it or say it. They feel us. And that moment you had with your mom just days before is absolutely real. I try to touch my mom too in our visits, like hold hands. Mm-hmm. She's not getting touched as much. And also, I don't know what she can even see or really understand, but I know that the physical, she likes to sing. We, me and my sister often sing with her. Oh. Um, I do feel like she feels us. I feel like she's happier. Yeah. I feel like she's kind of smiley when we're in her presence. So we're on your journey. You're at Stanford. I think you asked me a question about, you said that basketball was harder than oh, yeah. actual academics. For me, it's hard to say. There were times but it, when you are an athlete in college, and, I feel, and basketball was even more closer to the professional caliber at Stanford, track a little different, but we had two-a-days. We had double seasons, winter season, spring season. So I was always running. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to fit my schoolwork in there, but I also knew that I wanted to go to law school, that I needed a certain GPA, and I was good at trying to prioritize it. But being a student athlete was really hard, and I had to let it go my senior year. Please, please tell me more just about your Stanford experience with basketball and what led you down the path to doing what you're doing now? Yeah. I mean, I think first I'll just talk about the mindset, like, or why it was harder. Basketball was challenging, like not just my physical, it was challenging my body, my mind, and my spirit, my emotions in a way that I hadn't been tried mm. perhaps yet at 18. I would say the biggest trials of my life happened after college. You know, like I mentioned earlier, our family situation really went lower. Many people's lives, if you think about the trajectory of families and the goals of parents Mm -hmm. and families is to constantly grow and go higher. Most people's 
you may have started low, but things got better Right. or they stabilized. Like our family started lower class, but like most people that was living in Queens, but like things went down, you know, we faced homelessness. We faced multiple people being sick, mental illness. We faced heartache, pain, disappointment um, from multiple people within the family on top of, you know, we lost leaders and there was a lack of vision and organization. And suddenly I was thrust into a leadership position and I had no skills to handle it. I was scared. It was the worst time of my life. But at 18, I had not dealt with that. I, I, I was, I came up, I was always good at school. I was always the best player in basketball. Like I was well insulated by that. I went to the AP classes in my high school. I, so, you know, it's a certain type of student, even in junior high school, I went to public school my whole life. Like, yeah, like there were hard knocks of learning how to hold yourself, which I certainly learned, but you know, my academics kept me focused. My basketball kept me focused much like the other, every other girl on my team at Stanford came out. We were the best players in our state. I was raised in a family where I wanted to make my parents proud. I want my dad and my mom, the way they raised me, like I want to make them proud. So I was looking for their approval and acceptance. Um, you know, I was highly competitive, high, highly motivated. So to come to Stanford and, you know, the academics, I say, is easier in a sense. Like if I was having trouble, there was such a great support system. I've always been a hustler. And that doesn't just mean in work. That means in like you get out what you put in. If I struggled with a, you know, a math course. I found that teacher. I went to their office hours. I went to my study group. I participated. Like I cared. I put in effort. I've always been that kind of person. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to do well, but like basketball was challenging me in ways like a huge part of my identity, who I was, you know, as a woman, how I handled adversity when things maybe didn't go my way. You know, I'm there every day for like six to eight hours a day. And that's just like with the gym and the prehab and the rehab and the weights and the actual practice. And then you eat with your team, not to mention all the other hours you spend with your team. So like, again, 18 to 22 years old, this is a really huge part of my life and identity. And there were times where I wanted more and and this, and this really prepared me for life because who couldn't say this in their career? I wanted more than what I had. I wanted more responsibility. I wanted a more visible role. I wanted more minutes. I wanted more validation for someone to believe in me like Mm -hmm. and there were times where it wasn't happening and in those moments I learned how to deal with adversity if I lost my starting spot which was a huge deal that did happen to me you know how do you get it back so I you know I wasn't the one that was just going to let it happen and I've seen girls who let negative outcomes suck the joy out of them and I refused to let that happen and so like I recognized at a program like I was at, which was top five, you know, not only academics, but top five in basketball, this train can leave without you. That's a good life lesson to learn that the train can leave without you. So I was like, how do I get the book back on this train? And like, um, so I go to the conductor who was my coach, you know, and there's a humbling, there's a maturity that comes with that. I watched video with her. She was pointing out what I needed to do to get in there. Okay. What are the physical things I can do to be better? Cause I watched the video with her about decisions and shot selection. And then I'm working on my shot extra and then trying to go back and get my starting spot or it might sound small, but these are great lessons to learn for how you, you look. I meet people in the real world today, Ash, mm-hmm. and I can tell right away who's an athlete and who isn't just by how they problem solve, right? That's, yeah, that's so interesting because <laughs> I feel like it's the same with lawyers when they see that I was on the Stanford track team partners. Like, oh, wow. Okay. You're going to be great on the team. I'm like, okay, let's have lower expectations here. But there is something about being an athlete that teaches you certain core principles that, that really helps you succeed in life. 
Yes. And it's funny, you were talking about track. Like I remember the track. Track was not a great place for me. I'm a basketball player, number one. Yeah. We used to train on the track and I hated the track. So I get why you dipped. Listen, and the worst thing is that when you are the best at one of the hardest races, like I ran the 400 meters and I was actually listening to Allison Felix on a podcast earlier this week. And she said, the 400 is the hardest race. I wish I wasn't good at it. And when she said that, I don't want to quote, I don't know exactly if she said that exactly, but uh, she said something like that. And it gave me so much validation. I yeah. was like, it's not just me. This is all what makes hard it hard race. You are sprinting around the track one time, but the entire time you're supposed to be going as fast as you can. And so she was specifically describing that last 100 meters. And she said, no matter how much you train, it hurts. It really burns. The lactic acid kicks in and you are just, your legs feel like rubber and it's very hard. And so for the top Olympian to say that, it made me feel a lot better about my struggle. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It hurts. And also, Ash, I mean, you know, we all think about I'm working in this field. I work in basketball like this. Basketball was the vehicle that changed my life and all this and that, whether it was to go to Queens. I never thought to leave Queens. Like, I think your mission in this life, I really think so highly of you, like not to guess, but like like your your mission is bigger than that. It's even bigger than where we are right now. It's, It's like you are as a woman are meant to bring great joy and light into this world and help people like, and that's bigger than any bucket or track race run or basketball game, you know, whatnot. And there are special people in this world. You're one of those special people. Everybody's blessed and special, but you know, there are some really, I'm honored. You're my friend. And when I was at your birthday party, how did it feel to hear everybody say the same damn thing about you? Every (laughs) single person. I was like, well, let me get up and say that. But we all like, literally everybody was like, your kindness. I've never met. And I, I was outside with your, um, I think your dad's sister. She spoke, right? Yeah. My mom's sister. Yeah. Oh, your mom's aunt, sister. Yeah, your aunt, yes. Mm-hmm. Your mom's sister. And she was lovely. And she was telling me how like, no, Ash really has been this kind. She's always been this way. I've never seen her snap. In fact, she pointed out one time when someone was dealing with your mom the wrong way while she was sick and you didn't appreciate that. And you spoke up and I was like, well, see, Ash don't play. <laughs> You're so, first of all, thank you. That is so kind because you know I feel the same way about you. You're you're my big sis and you've always inspired me and I always say just you have the biggest heart. But for you to say that about me, that means so much. For someone I look up to, to say that about me, it means the world. So I look up to you. I just happened to be born first. (laughs) I look up to you like your grace and kindness. I would love, I, I think I'm a very kind and good person. Something, but you have more grace, like, you know, and to see how you dealt with so much adversity and hurt in your life. And I actually, you know, I've been dealing with a lot of adversity and hurt more recently. I think everybody, you look around, everybody's dealing with something. I mean, we just went through a whole pandemic. Everybody's hurt. And we're just also, have you noticed, we're just getting older. There's something about the thirties or maybe just life as you grow older, more things happen. I am literally like... Will somebody give me the fucking answers? Like, I thought by now I would have figured this shit out. But every day is like, it never ends. And I'm literally going from morning to night, all day going hard. And I'm like, is this what life is? And I'm like, I don't even have children yet. Like, I'm so, I want, like, is this, is this what, is this adulthood? Is this adulting? Because 
I'm out of time every day. I can barely keep up with my regular life. But I guess to my host voice, I'll to bring this back full circle to the track analogy, it would work here in that, and I think about this sometimes, like you might think I'm weird, like always thinking about lessons from sports, but I remember we used to run the track and it was like nothing serious. It was like some two, two, three mile test. But for basketball at the time, we were just doing sprints. Nobody ran like long distances. Mm-hmm. And that used to be like the biggest mental thing. Like I used to run it and I knew I wanted a good time. I knew I had to have a good time as, as a leader, as a leading guard. And I remember that was eight laps on Stanford track, right? Yeah. Eight laps, I think. And again, like we don't, so to a long distance run, you're like, girl, that's my warm up. But to us, that was a big deal. And, and it really messed with my head mentally. I used to like, I'd be on like lap three, like, what, what would they do if I stopped? What if I stopped? Like, what, what if I tripped and hurt myself? Like, what would they do? Like, you know, like, and then finally I'd get over like number five and I'd be like, all right, home stretch. And then I learned how to like, kind of get myself to the point where I could. And I knew there were some people who had incredible stamina or were just going to lead the pack out. So I learned on the long distance runs, I'm going to stay with, there was, there was a girl, Sissy Pierce or somebody else. I'm going to stay with her, mm-hmm. let her set the pace, you know, and then I'm going to stay with her and then, you know, try to pace myself. Cause I used to try to sprint it out the gate and I'd find myself dying at the end. Yeah. And then I like, I didn't have quite the mental endurance to pace myself yet. There's a mental endurance that comes with that. And then finally, like in order to teach myself how to pace, I followed like somebody who already could do it. And then eventually I was the senior or junior that was setting the pace. And there were like some youngins like following me, but then I knew at the end for those who were able to keep the pace, we all knew we were going for it at the end. So it was like, it was kind of like throughout the moment of the run, there were various moments where someone else would lead. And and then our coaches egging us on, come on, Roz, don't be lagging. And like, and like, and then at the end, I knew I was going to go for it. And that's, that's one way to think about it. Then there was another way when we were in practice and we used to do things like suicides or 17s, which is like you run the, the width of the court back and forth 17 times under a certain amount of time. Guards had to be under a minute, posts under a certain time. And that's sprints. So that's closer to the 400, if you will. And the mindset there was different. It was less about like, let me pace and be able to make it over the course of time. It was more about would I dare to push myself further. And at first, I just wanted to make my time. And then I was scared. Honestly, I had to check myself. I was scared to go harder because I was afraid I wouldn't finish. And that's a whole different mindset. So I learned just try it. And if you can't finish it, you can't finish it. So I went harder and set new times for myself. And I didn't just get the appropriate guard time to pass. I actually like pushed myself to get the best time for myself. And so these little small lessons you learn in sports, it's like how I even approached my life in broadcasting. Like I definitely think, you know, and there's been so many ups and downs even in my career and, you know, it's been 10 years. I mean, people have been doing this for 40. Yeah. Uh, it's the type of industry that's always competitive. I don't think at any level, the higher you get, you don't think, whoa, it's so comfortable up here. You're still uncomfortable. You still want more and nothing's secure. And it's a high pressure job too. I want people to look back and think like, damn, Roz is still here. Like I think of this as my two mile race. Like I got endurance. I'm not going to get too high with the highs, too low with the lows. I'm steadily building. I'm keeping pace. And I have the capability of exploding past you. A lot of y'all, but a lot of y'all don't have the endurance I have. And like, I have the endurance and I'm going to last the test of time and constantly re-innovate and have the motivation. One, because I love what I do. Yeah. Two, because I'm competitive. 
And three, because I have developed, you don't always have to, I was not born like this. Like, and that's an important thing. Like you can work at these life skills and these mental trainings, but I am mentally tough. And that partly is from my family and how I was brought up. And a lot of it came from how sports molded me. And I have a lot of heart. And I think that's going to go a long way in my life. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.